Six years ago, we released a Hebrew episode about the idea of letting go. Alan, Alan. אני מישי הרמן, וברוכים הבאים לעוד פרק של סיפור ישראלי. והפעם, תרגיל בשחרור, בשתי מערכות. And for the lead of that episode, we spent a day with Shmulik Landau, the chief caretaker at the Israeli Wildlife Hospital at the Safari in Ramat Gan. Shmulik introduced us to some of the hospital's patients, an injured griffin vulture from the Golan, a tortoise with a shattered shell from the Arava, and a gazelle that had been hit while crossing Route 6. Then, and this is why we were there, he kindly let us tag along as he released a frail common blackbird back into nature. Ready? he asked as he held the small bird in his hands. How was the release? Our producer Shai Satran asked him. Good, Shmulik said. It was a good release. The blackbird flew a few feet away and landed on a nearby branch. Shmulik turned around to go back inside. We need to let go, he said. He's on his own now. We can't keep on looking after him. We did everything we could for him. We treated him, we fed him good food, we practiced flying. And now he has to go out and make it on his own. We did our part. As we were talking, the blackbird took off and within a few seconds disappeared out of sight. A somewhat unceremonious end to this supposedly dramatic act of letting go. But that blackbird, Shmulik made sure to tell us, was lucky. Most wild animals that come his way, he said with sad eyes, will never be released back to nature. They just wouldn't make it. So reluctantly, Shmulik and his colleagues put most animals they receive to sleep. We understand, he said, that that's just what's best for them. Unfortunately, we gently asked whether that was also a form of letting go. But Shmulik, he didn't see it that way. I wouldn't call it a release, he said. It leaves you with more of a heavy heart, a stone in your heart, really, than a feeling of having let go. Shai pressed him on this. Maybe it's not a release into nature, he suggested, but you are releasing the animal from its pain. Shmulik agreed with that, and then told us something we later realized we had only partially understood. Sometimes you see a creature that's scared to death, suffering physically in a way we can't even imagine, that has been through trauma, and you feel like, okay, let it be, he'll be better off that way. That we humans have inflicted enough pain, caused enough damage, 
And now, all we have left to do is minimize its suffering. It doesn't feel like a release to me, but you can call it that if you want to. Hey, I'm Mishi Harman, and this is Israel Story. Israel Story is brought to you by the Jerusalem Foundation and, as of this episode, the Times of Israel. We'll return to Shmulik's story later on. But despite that somewhat bleak opening, today's a really exciting day. We're starting our seventh season, which is also our first in our new home at the Times of Israel. We're truly delighted to be joining forces with the leading, most widely read, and most influential English-language news publisher in the country. And this season, we have all kinds of amazing tales to tell, of folks living different lifestyles, with different beliefs, and in different contexts. Now, these are, of course, tumultuous times here in Israel. But especially now, I think it's important to double down on our focus on people, ordinary people, living extraordinary lives. Because at the end of the day, once we're all done fighting and protesting and calling each other names, we'll also have to live together. And given that, we might as well know who we're living with. So this season we'll meet clowns at demonstrations and Air Force pilots in captivity. We'll attend a tragic funeral in Beersheva and sit in on an incredibly bizarre first date in, of all places, our very own studio. We'll play therapeutic rounds of Dungeons and Dragons and place mega expensive and complicated long-distance phone calls. And we'll also have one giant and still secret audio project for Israel's 75th Independence Day. This season we'll cry together and laugh together and get angry together. But whatever the emotion might be, we'll be together. And that, at least to me, feels very, very good. Alright, let's start. We chose to open our season with a theme that actually isn't grounded here. A theme that can spread its wings and fly far, far away. Our episode today... Free as a bird. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. The Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if? What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet? But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. 
They turn those ideas into reality. They make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society. World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you. Hey listeners, it's Mishi. Last week we released our 50th wartime diary. This week is Yom HaZikaron and Yom HaTzmaut. And as a way of marking this milestone, and these dates, Yochai Meital and I will have a series of onstage conversations in New York and Cleveland. We'll discuss the process of creating wartime diaries, talk about some of the challenges we've encountered, the dilemmas we've had, the insights we've gained, So if you want to hear what covering the evolving story of this war has been like for us, we'd love to see you at one of our events. All the details are on our site, israelstory.org. And meanwhile, wishing us all calm and peaceful days ahead. Okay, we're back. New season, new stories, let's begin. Our episode today, Free as a Bird, has stories that are ostensibly about birds, but are really about the heights to which the human spirit can soar and the depths to which it can plunge. Act 1, Honorary Birds. Here's Adina Karpuch. On the morning before Passover, I left my Jerusalem apartment and headed down Gaza Street. Evidence of pre-holiday cleaning, open packages of pasta, half-consumed loaves of bread, and tins of microwavable Quaker oats were strewn along the sidewalk. It was still quiet outside, and save for a honk here or there, it was just me and the birds. Oh, listen to that one. I think it's going to be a good day. Day for birding. I was on my way to the Jerusalem Bird Observatory, which is right across the road from the Knesset's Rose Garden. And when I arrived, just before 7 a.m., the day's activities were already in full swing. Teenagers in cargo pants and hiking boots were entering data points into a computer. A gaggle of little girls crowded around a tall, bald man with a tiny bird in his hand. But I wasn't there to learn about migratory patterns or mating calls. Instead, I'd come to hear a story about the three friends who run this place. The bald guy, Amir. My name is Amir Balaban. I'm the head of the Urban Wildlife Initiative in uh, the Society for the Detection of Nature in Israel. Yoav. Okay, so my name is Yoav Perlman. Uh, I'm a birder. Currently, I'm the director of BirdLife Israel, which is a branch of the Society for Protection of Nature in Israel. And his older brother, Gidon. I'm Gidon Perlman. I am Gidon Perlman. Their story begins back in 1975. 
Eleven-year-old Emil was bored, restless, and feeling adventurous. A dangerous trifecta, if there ever was one. In those days, it was either soccer, track, chess, or birding. Yeah, birding. This new ornithological addition to the after-school landscape of mid-70s Jerusalem was the passion project of a young zoology grad student. Okay, my name is Yossi Leshem. Some people say that I'm the craziest guy because I'm always doing what I want to do, but I think this is my advantage. And what he wanted to do was make the boys and girls of Jerusalem fall in love with birds. So we opened the city's first and only birding club. You have always to think out of the box. The club attracted a bunch of nature nerds who'd follow Yossi into the woods armed with binoculars. It was a small-scale operation. Then, one day, Yossi got an unusual call. The man on the other end of the line told him that... There is a young boy that is raising a falcon at his home. A young boy raising a falcon, a wild bird of prey, in his bedroom. And that young boy? None other than our rambunctious sixth grader, Amir. I was always a troublemaker in school, so uh, together with a few friends we robbed the nest. Now, it was, and still is, illegal to capture and raise falcons. But none of that seemed to matter to Emil and his friends. They divided the chicks between them and thought they had gotten away with it. But it wasn't a perfect crime because the flat owner knew me. A neighbor noticed what was going on and decided to teach the boys a lesson. So he called the SPNI. That's the Society for Protection of Nature in Israel. And they told them, talk to Yossi Leshem. The guy phoned Yossi, the zoology grad student, recounted the story and asked for help. Yossi, totally outraged, called up Amir and demanded that he release the poor falcon chick at once. But Amir, quite the daredevil, promptly refused. Yossi had no other recourse than to call the cops. I told the police, come and confiscate it because it's against the law. The cops summoned Amir to the station. And I was fingerprinted as an 11-year-old. That's quite an experience. As for his punishment... I told the policeman, listen, you know, he's a young guy. He's not, he doesn't understand what he's doing exactly. Tell him that if he released the falcon, then the only thing will be that he can join the bird club and he will see that we have to protect the bird and not put them in a cage or hold them at your home. With the alternative being criminal charges, Amir reluctantly joined Yossi's birding club. And to his surprise... What happened was that I turned from a hunter into a conservationist. Amir liked it so much that he stayed on long after his unofficial punishment time was up. He soon became Yossi's protégé and even started guiding younger kids as a birding counselor. It was then, in the early 80s, that two scrawny and enthusiastic brothers showed up. 11-year-old Gidon and 8-year-old Yoav. Suddenly you get these two thin, blonde kids holding a pair of binoculars in one hand and a sandwich on the other hand. I would stop for lunch, and they will not. And when you see people that won't give up birding time when they're hungry, understand that you have suckers on your hand and they're, they're they're for the long ride. And so it was. Apparently uninterested in crack, chess, or soccer, the Perlman brothers became regulars at the birding club. Here's Yoav, the younger of the two. I must admit that in the first years, uh, Gidon 
I think he looked at me as the annoying young brother and he didn't really want me to join the group, but I think he understood that I'm not giving up. And uh, from quite a young age, we spent a lot of time together birding and trained together. Emil taught them how to ring, a monitoring method which involves trapping birds in nets, taking their measurements, and placing a metal ring with a serial number on one of their legs before releasing them back into the wild. Yoav remembers how they travel all over the country to set up their gear before dawn. Birds are active uh, early in the morning, usually. Sometimes you wake up at 3 or 4, uh, drive somewhere, set up the, the nets, the gear, and start work uh, at first light. At 18, Emil was, supposedly, the responsible adult. But once a daredevil, I guess always a daredevil. And in the brothers, he found eager young partners. Together we do many stupid things, take too many risks, too many adventures. One time, for instance, Amir convinced them to... Cross the uh, Israeli-Syrian-Lebanese border on Mount Hermon because all the good birds are beyond the border. So you have to pass all the army checkposts. as a stowaway in, a, in an army truck. And then you could walk wherever you like, into Syria or into Lebanon, depending on the birds. And this is how we added some very nice birds to our list. It was very irresponsible, but yet very satisfying. Irresponsible, yet satisfying. That would become a motto by which all three of them would go on to live. Because Amir was my mentor in those early days, I think I grew up as an irresponsible and reckless adult. In 1984, Amir, the beloved counselor, was drafted into the army. He joined a special ops intelligence unit and, after his compulsory service, signed on as an officer. When it was time for Gidon, his former birding mentee, to enlist, Amir secured him a spot in the very same unit. Yoav, the younger brother, was still in high school, but they'd all meet up on weekends, to bird, of course. This went on for years. Sometimes, they'd travel hundreds of kilometers at a moment's notice to spot a rare bird. Other times, they'd head out to their backyards. Apparently, they saw more than 160 species just outside their living rooms. Surprisingly, though, the place they frequented most was the Knesset. Or, well, right outside of it. During one of those visits, on a clear Saturday morning in April 1994, they were setting up their ringing nets near the Rose Garden, just as they'd been doing for years. It was a beautiful spring morning, first round, net number one, and I saw this little bird, and it had a ring. And I said, wow, we haven't ringed here for at least two weeks. I wonder if it stayed two weeks. It was a lesser white throat, a small warbler with a gray back and white underbelly. And I remember reaching for the bird, taking it out, looking at the ring and just freezing. To their amazement, this wasn't a bird they'd ringed two weeks earlier, or for that matter, ever. The bird had been ringed 3,300 kilometers away in Sundra, Sweden. And for all you non-birders out there, Emil explains that catching a bird with a foreign ring is rare. Very rare. I don't know if you believe in omens, but it was like an omen. Come spring, birds like this lesser whitethroat would voyage from their Saharan winter to a cool Scandinavian summer. Jerusalem was a mid-journey pit stop. 
Amir, Gidon, and Yoav, you see, were standing in the middle of one of the world's busiest intercontinental avian highways. Clearly, they thought to themselves, this was the place to set up a toll booth. And that's how the Jerusalem Bird Observatory, or JBO, was born. That was the start of the path. Somehow, the three passionate friends managed to convince the state to hand over an acre and a half of prime real estate between the parliament and the Supreme Court. Yeah. Imagine the U.S. federal government giving three amateurs in their 20s a plot of land on the National Mall. But that's exactly what happened. And almost immediately, the trio assembled a team, built an artificial pond, planted trees, and constructed a bird hive. They transformed a dilapidated storage room in the Knesset's backyard into the offices where, almost 30 years later, I would meet them on that pre-Passover visit. Instead of a derelict asbestos hut, we converted it into a research station and educational facility. We're sitting actually where the tractor and all the herbicides were kept. Today, Amir told me, We have about 50,000 paying visitors for guiding services every year. And I would say another 50,000 or even more that just passed through in the afternoons, Shabbat, you know. Amir Yoav and Gidon spent a lot of time and energy making their JBO dream a reality. And they assumed this is how things would always be. Researching at the observatory and birding out in the field. Sandwiches in one hand, binoculars in the other. But a few years in, Gidon, the older of the two brothers, threw a wrench into those plans. I remember we guided a, a young ornithological trip to Eilat. And on the way back, he like told me, listen, I decided to go and study medicine. And I thought, are you crazy? You can't do it. You know, it's too demanding. You know, what about our project? And I didn't stop badgering him until we got to Jerusalem. It's two and a half hours and he didn't budge an inch. Despite Emil's pleas, Gidon enrolled in medical school. And he proved me wrong. But even so, Amir never stopped complaining. When he became a doctor, that also, I said, listen, you're saving people. It's, it's not ecological to save people. You know, nature has to do its course. You have to let them die. You know, you're working against us. No, he has to save people. Gidon promised Yoav and Amir that he wouldn't give up birding. And he kept that promise. Between rotations and shifts at the hospital, he joined them out in the field to ring. Gidon can do eight things at once, but that's Gidon. He's one of a kind. As they each advanced in their respective careers, Yuav and Amir in wildlife conservation, Gidon in medicine, birding always remained the glue. They each got married and had kids, but at heart, they were still just three pals on a never-ending birding odyssey. Life was good, stable. Yoav worked at the SPNI, Amir headed the observatory, and Gidon climbed the ranks of the medical world. In March 2015, he was offered a prestigious fellowship in cardiology at St. Paul's Hospital in Vancouver, Canada. He was at the top of his game, doing research, operating, and, in his free time, it goes without saying, birding. But then... I started to feel weak. That's Gidon. Mm-hmm. 
Das Schill I am Yoav's brother. Gidon started feeling a sharp pain in his right leg. And when it wouldn't go away, he begrudgingly got it checked out. After all, he was in Vancouver to be the doctor, not the patient. But after weeks of tests and medical exams, the verdict came back. ALS. I remember the moment. It was a late-night call, um, and I understood that something is going on. That's Yoav, who received the news from their father. Yeah, it was quite a, quite a shock, um, especially because Gideon was so active and so excellent and so young back then. Gideon was 43 at the time, 12 years younger than the average age of ALS diagnoses. He was given three years to live. It's now been seven. Gidon can no longer speak, at least not with his mouth. To communicate anything more than a grunt, he uses an iPad, staring at each character on the keyboard long enough for it to recognize his gaze. Every letter, let alone word, takes significant effort. And his articulation is extremely slow. Not because his mind is sluggish, but rather because the technology attempting to replace his mouth simply isn't there yet. Those clicks you hear between each of his words are the sound of him typing. With his eyes, that is. I've condensed them here for the sake of time. But you should know that a simple sentence, I'm Yoav's brother, for instance, can take a full minute or more. And that hum you hear in the background? Those are the various machines that allow him to breathe and cough. Or in other words, keep him alive. Amir and Yoav told me that many ALS patients choose a certain red line beyond which they aren't willing to go on with their treatment. For some, it's the feeding tube. For others, it's intubation once breathing independently becomes impossible. But Gidon took a different approach. Almost immediately after the diagnosis, he decided that ALS wasn't going to stop him. He had children to raise, research to do, and of course, birds to spot. I want to see as much as possible. ALS or not, he was determined to crisscross the globe and track down as many birds and other rare species as possible. We actually decided that we're going on this big cat quest. A big cat quest. Why? Because, as you have claims... Big cats are something special. They're like honorary birds. Honorary birds. Something only true ornithologists would ever say. The idea is making lemonade from lemons. That's Amir once again. Gidon is the best excuse to travel all over the world. You know, Gidon needs to see a tiger. You know, he has ALS. He's never seen a tiger. He missed it in his 20s, so we, we have to get him a, a tiger. So the trio sprung into action, adding in a fourth musketeer, their childhood friend, Eli. My name is Eli Carniel. Eli is conveniently a physician. And thus, team roles were assigned. You have his well-connected. Eli's a doctor. 
I'm in charge of uh, fun and games. We were a special team. And the adventures are crazy, of course. They saw black bears and humpback whales in Canada, went dog sledding in Alaska, spotted a palace fish eagle in an Indian sewage dump, and laid eyes on a Iberian lynx in Spain. As you can imagine, the habitats in which these animals live aren't exactly gold standard accessible. But that wasn't going to stop them. The logistics of traveling with a person with disabilities are quite complicated. Gidon's physical condition did deteriorate between trip and trip. Um, Gidon started saying something. I wasn't scared. That's life. And, just in case anything went wrong, there was Eli. I was equipped like an intensive care unit, had everything on my back. Eli is the most, I'd say, professional, irresponsible doctor I know. <laughs> and we need him on board. On one of these expeditions, they found themselves in the world's largest tropical wetlands. The Pantanal in Brazil, that's the place in the world to see jaguar. And everything was great. We had fantastic time. In fact, Emil recalls, they were having so much fun that they simply couldn't leave. One of our main problems is knowing when enough is enough. When they were finally heading out of the wetlands and back to their hotel, they suddenly saw... This big sign, do you want to see Agami Heron? Agami Heron is like a, a most beautiful and rare heron. Spontaneous detours with a paraplegic ALS patient in a remote Brazilian river? For these guys, a no-brainer. There was just one small problem. There are caiman uh, alligators there in the, in the water and piranha fish in that river. But the opportunity to see such a rare bird was just too tempting. And we thought, yeah, why not? Let's try. So they did. It was a three-meter climb down from the pier. Tiny, very unsafe boat. Very, very, very narrow. And we thought, no, it's, it's too dangerous. It's too unsafe. They were, you have remembers, about to fall. But Gidon really insisted and we agreed on, on, on doing it. So we put Gidon on a, like a white plastic chair and a few of us, we sort of lowered him down uh, the ladder into that tiny boat. We kind of improvised because it was too low for him to sit on the regular bench. With Gidon settled in, the team started canoeing around the river looking everywhere for the agamis. We didn't see the heron. It was a bit too late in the day, but it was a nice trip nevertheless. And when we got back to the pier, Eli, who's a, quite a big guy, stood up because he wanted to climb up the ladder and start uh, arranging things to get Gidon back on shore. He just rose from his chair and the boat started swaying. I rocked the boat. To everyone's horror, Gidon went flying in the air. I see him, mid-air, falling to the water. Boom, plump, flew off. Fell into the water. You know, you can say Jack Robinson. Gidon was headfirst into the murky brown water of this Cayman and piranha-infested river. Instantly, he went down three, four meters. And he just disappeared. He can't help it. You have the dilemma, is this over? Or, or not. And I just remember seeing Noga's face. Noga is Gidon's wife. In front of my face when I come back to Israel and I tell her that Gidon drowned 
in a river in Brazil, and without having a second thought, I jumped in. Amir and Eli, instantly they jumped after him. I had my passport on me and my phone and everything. It was quite scary, but uh, they managed to, to get him out. We took him to the, the shore. All's well that ends well? Not quite. Here's Amir. My binoculars... My beloved Sovorovsky binoculars fell into the deep abyss. And then I had the second dilemma, whether to jump in and search for the binoculars. So Amir and I went back into the water and we started uh, diving to search in the mud there, in the muck and the mud. Again and again, they came up empty-handed. So one of us was diving and another one was with a metal rod uh, ready to hit the caiman when it uh, comes close. Eventually we found the binoculars and Amir was sort of floating on his back. And then I see the caimans starting to swim to him and I tell Amir, I think it's time that you get out of the water, there's a caiman. And suddenly I hear them shouting, get out of the water again! <laughs> and I said, nah, the, you must be kidding. Oh, come on, guys, stop that shit, you know, it's, it's just like pulling my leg. Huh? So, no, no, look back, he's swimming at you, get the fuck out. And I look towards my feet and I see this caiman starting to swim towards me. I think this was my fastest swim ever back to shore and they were laughing their heads off. It was quite uh, quite scary, but uh, it ended well. Even though Gidon soon lost the ability to breathe independently and impulsively hopping on a canoe in a river flush with piranhas seemed like a lifetime ago, the crew just kept on going adding more and more exotic animals to their bucket list. Tiger, uh, lions and cheetahs and leopard. Wild dogs and wolves. When flying abroad became impossible for Gidon, they shifted to local adventures. Yeah, so in July we went to the Kineret. We created the pyramid of, of rafting boats that could sustain the weight of for adults and a 120 kilo wheelchair. I think since the miracle of Jesus walking on water, never has the Sea of Galilee seen a crazy sight such as this. This is audio from a video taken at that outing. Emil's pointing out purple heron to Gidon, who's sitting underneath a beach umbrella being fed fresh watermelon, and seemingly enjoying the adventure more than anyone. That's how it works. Gidon said, take me there, and we, like good soldiers, we get everything together and, and do it. A theme in whatever we do is that if you get a bad card, do something good with it. Muskim agreed. Gidon's condition has declined quite a bit since I began interviewing him. It's become harder and harder for him to answer questions or even reply to texts. He's extremely tired and doesn't get out as much as he used to. On one of my visits to the JBO, this time without Gidon, I met his 10-year-old daughter, Naama. I couldn't help but notice the white Bengal tiger on her t-shirt. She's her father's daughter, that's for sure. Naama was gently detangling a bird from a neck trying to beat her own record for most birds ringed in a single day. Wait, that was the sixth one. Yay! Yes! I asked her what she likes so much about coming here. Taking the birds out of the net, uh, holding them, just looking at them because they're really pretty, and 
there's a lot to learn from them. Many things you can learn from birds. Yeah. She even had a PSA for you, dear listeners. If for some reason you wake up really early, like at five, and you want to do something, and you have nothing on your schedule, it will be open here. Really? Yeah, at five they open. Unsurprisingly, Naama wants to be an ornithologist when she grows up. And though she's still too young to officially join the club, she trains on her own. Yep, I already started doing it. <laughs> or sort of on her own. See, Yoav and Amir have stepped in where her own dad no longer can, and will often pick Naama up at the crack of dawn so that she can help them ring. In fact, adventures at unusual hours are something that happen with a certain degree of regularity. A few months after I first met the crew, I got a text message from Yoav. Feeling spontaneous, he asked. Sure, I texted back. Good. Later tonight, we're heading into the desert. Yido wants to see a certain kind of rare fox. You in? When I arrived at our meeting point, Yido wasn't there. He had hired a special taxi to traverse the mountains and valleys, dry riverbeds and gravel roads leading to the spot of the stakeout. By the time Amir, Yoav and I got there, he was already situated, looking up at the starry night, waiting for the fox. Gidon's iPad struggles to calibrate outdoors, which rendered him nonverbal for the evening. When he needed something, a game of 20 questions began. Is it your glasses? Amir asked. Gidon shook his head. No. Are you cold? Are you hot? Is it your hand, your legs, the angle of your wheelchair? Do you want to sit up more? Or lie on your side? This went on for a while, and no one was ever able to figure out what exactly Gidon actually needed. Because in the middle of all the guessing, the fox suddenly appeared. You have asked his brother if he managed to see it. A huge smile spread across Gidon's face. Yes, he had. A few days later, back in Jerusalem, I asked Amir if they ever think about slowing down for the sake of Gidon's safety. He seemed amused by my question. <laughs> what, what's the worst that can happen, that he'll die? He was uh, expected to have three years. He's now running into seven. Eden's not going to give up easy. And do you think about the day after? Yeah, like everybody else, you know, my day after, your day after, all of us are going to have a day after. So I'm not much, uh, you know, worried about it or uh, giving it uh, much attention. It'll come. It'll have its bad side. It'll have its good sides. When Amir said that, that Gidon's death will have its good sides, I assumed he was referring to the sense of relief that can often accompany the end of a loved one's battle with a long and debilitating disease. That feeling that they're now at peace, that the suffering is over. But Amir, what can I say? He's a naturalist, through and through. Remember, at the end of the day, every person alive is bad for conservation. We need to die. 
We need to make room. Our body has to decompose. We need to release the energy we're taking for something else in order to create life. It's a cycle of life. So if you get a long ride, it's not always good. If you get a short and happy ride, that's the best. The mentality and what we're uh, trying to achieve as long as uh, Gideon is with us is carry on doing what we like. Full steam ahead. The next time I saw Gidon, I asked him what was next, what he still has left to do. Yoav took a moment to wipe the saliva that had run down his older brother's chin so that he could answer me more comfortably. Gidon looked at me, then he looked at his brother, smiled mischievously, and started to type. To live and to create. He's currently writing a book about the Jerusalem Bird Observatory and still works in the medical field, too. He continues his research at Hadassah Hospital and is developing cardiovascular stents at a company called Medinol. Just recently, they released a new coronary stent, the Pearl, named for its lead scientist, Guidon Perlman. Unfortunately, the pandemic put a huge wrench in the big cat quest. And for fear of infection, Guidon moved to working entirely remotely. For good. The one place he still frequents, though less and less these days, is the observatory. On my last visit there, I found him sitting in his fancy electric wheelchair, looking up at a large computer screen. Two young ornithologists next to him were entering observation data into the system, while Emil was teaching a group of kids how to release ringed birds back into the wild. It's a little hard to hear, but Guidon would occasionally let out these low-pitched grunts, indicating to the teens that they'd made a mistake. Amir, his interpreter, would stop whatever he was doing to explain to them what Guidon meant. Meanwhile, Yoav was ringing on his own nearby. Things were, in some strange way, and give or take an oxygen tank and feeding tube, just as they'd always been, the trio together doing what they love. Adina Karpuch. Just recently, Gidon sent Yoav, Amir, and Eli a picture in their WhatsApp group. It was a medical document, confirming that he can get on a plane to Dubai. There's a certain rare bird, a crab plover, he still wants to see. We'll be right back. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. 
We released the Hebrew episode that included our visit with Shmulik, the chief caretaker at the Israeli Wildlife Hospital, whom we met at the top of the hour, in January 2017. Shmulik texted us the day it came out, and told us that he liked it, that it was very moving. Two months later, Shmulik Landau killed himself. He was 32. When we re-listened to what he had told us about injured animals, that sometimes he received creatures who were suffering so terribly, that he felt, okay, let it be, let's end their pain. We suddenly understood he may have been talking about himself, When I listen to what you asked him then, I shiver. Because without knowing it, you were asking him about himself. That's Shmulik's older brother, Eli. That was exactly the dilemma he lived with all the time, whether to give up or to continue to fight. For many, many years, Shmuel tried to live. And for many, many years, he tried to die. The successful attempt which ended Shmulik's life hadn't been his first. For years, he struggled with eating disorders and sadness. And though it was never officially diagnosed, a borderline personality disorder. He was the youngest of six children in a very religious family. Today we'd call them Chardalim, or nationalist Chardim. He grew up in Kiryat Moshe, a religious neighborhood at the entrance to Jerusalem. Shmulik and Eli's dad had made Aliyah from the States, but left that life behind, which is why Eli apologized. My English is not so good, but I can try. Instead of going into the army, Shmulik volunteered at the safari as part of his national service. And then he just stayed there for almost 15 years till the very end. And uh, you know, he he keep a normal faith and normal life outside. And his way to survive. I think so. To be yeah. meaningful, to be for animals and, and people as well. That's Sarah. Eli's wife, Shmulik's sister-in-law. Look, he tried to kill himself many times and to get up after a suicide attempt and try to go on with your normal life. That's something you can only do if you can make a complete separation between things. You can't do it any other way. It's just too painful. And that's the pain that he ultimately ended. I can understand that, but we're the ones left behind. We're the ones with that stone in our heart. Shmulik was buried in a wall. That's the new burial method here in Israel, since cemeteries are running out of space. His colleagues from the wildlife hospital brought a rehabilitated Eurasian sparrowhawk they had been treating, and Shmulik and Eli's mom, Rachel, Release the bird back to nature at the gravesite. There's an amazing photo of the moment of the release, which you can see on our website, 
israelstory.org. We'll return to Shmulik and to one final and truly unusual plot twist at the end of the episode. But for now, let's continue with a completely different tale in which a bird, a hoopoo bird to be precise, served as the long-lost key to a seemingly impenetrable lock. Tishma, I... Look, I... I can't. I can't. That's Doron Nesher. Back in the 80s and 90s, you basically couldn't turn on the radio or open the TV in Israel without encountering him. He was everywhere and everything. A singer, an actor, a poet, a broadcaster, a comedian, a popular TV host. His 1987 film, or Late Summer Blues, opened the Jerusalem Film Festival, became a cult film overnight, and is, till this day, one of the most popular and iconic Israeli films of all time. He was good-looking, eloquent, smart. And then, at the height of his success and fame, he decided to leave the spotlight and move to the States, where he served as a JNF emissary for 10 years. Given that, you might have thought that doing this interview in English would have been a piece of cake for him. But... I forgot my English. And it isn't that I just forgot it. As part of my stroke, my English was entirely erased. You can't imagine what it's like. I mean, for 10 years I was in America, living in San Francisco, and I used to perform in English. Can you imagine? Now I have to learn the language from scratch. So our conversation in Doron's home in Ramat Sharon took place entirely in Hebrew. Doron's 68 now, and has, since he suffered a nearly fatal stroke in August 2012, been on a journey. One in which he's rebuilding himself, re-finding himself, discovering who and what makes up Doron Nesher. And I still don't know who I am. I'm, I'm, I'm learning everything from the start. The stroke, he says, was the defining moment of his life. It's like an earthquake. It devastates everything. 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 And now my right leg and right arm are paralyzed. But my greatest difficulty is my aphasia. Aphasia can refer to many different things. But in Dawn's case, it's an inability to formulate language, to retrieve certain words. If I want to say... A simple sentence. I can. Things like, I want to eat. I'm tired. Or, I'm hungry. All that's okay. 
But if I want to say a more complex sentence, like the ones I'm using now, it's hard. It requires endless concentration. And if, for example, I want to use a word I haven't said in a while. You have to somehow bring it up from the depths. Exactly. After his stroke, Doron spent months at Bet Levenstein, a rehabilitation center in Ra'anana. For the first three months, I didn't say a word. And look, I understood everything. And I was trying to talk, but I just couldn't. I kept on asking myself, how the hell do you talk? I tried. I really tried. But nothing came out. Doron worked intensely with a speech therapist named Tseela. And with her help, words slowly, slowly started coming back to him. Shulchan. K-bol-vi-lon. K-ten. Matos. Airplane. Every time I managed to add another word to my collection, I, w- I was in tears. At the end of the sessions with Selah, I'd take the elevator back up to the ward, and I'd say to people there, Curtain! And I'd cry. Curtain! And they'd look at me as if I'd lost my mind. Each word was a bridge to new words and to new parts of his old self. Getting there, arriving at each new word, forced him to dig deep into his past and into his subconscious world of associations. But certain words just wouldn't come. And that brings us to the story we're here to discuss. So, here are actors Ishai Golan and Gilia Stern Nechmad reading a story Doron wrote about one of his first major breakthroughs. Act 2, Duchifat, The Hoopoo Bird. Zela sits at the end of a very long corridor, and there she guards the Hebrew language as if it were a treasure. Sometimes Zela reminds me of a sentry at the gate. Other times she's a friend, like now for instance. Hi, Doron. It's good to see you again. We have just under an hour together. She smiles as I enter and hands me an empty notebook with lines. I'm 59 years old, and I'm learning how to write with my left hand, but also with my paralyzed right hand. I'm also relearning to talk. I don't know how to talk anymore. I mean, I do, but have issues with recalling specific words. I just can't find them. They are right there on the tip of my tongue, but I can't get them out. When Tela asks me to say something... Say something, Doron. I don't know which muscles to move. Anything. Up until a few weeks ago, I could talk freely. I even made a living talking. I could find every single word I wanted and didn't even have to try very hard. They were just there. Always. I don't exactly know how to explain what happened to me. A stroke, they say. The connection between thought and speech has been severed. It's tiring. 
very tiring. Tzela shows me pictures. A chair, a desk, a bed, a telephone. I know exactly what they are. I know it's a chair, but the word won't come to me. I can't say it. Tzela has this patient smile. Behind that smile, she hides the secret password needed to enter the world called Hebrew. I used to know that password too. Not anymore. I lost it. For the life of me, I can't remember what it is. And it's not just the password. I lost language itself, too. It's gone. That thing that makes you feel that you're part of a group, that you're in on a secret, that makes you smile when you hear familiar Hebrew words spoken in a distant land when someone you don't even know speaks your language. I used to be part of all that. Now I'm not. They are. They know. I don't. Tzela begins. Shall we? She seems nice enough. She has a tiny lisp. It's something in her lip, I think. I'm not sure I have the patience for this today. But then again, I don't really have a choice. And I trust her. She's probably coached many people like me before. Guided them through the labyrinth we call talking. Let's start with some simple words. She pulls out a folder with pictures and shows them to me one after the other. She asks me to identify and name them. They're simple objects. Hammer, fork, light bulb. And I get that this should be child's play. There's another one. It's like a seedling, but taller. Kind of a plant, but with arms, leaves. It's big, very big. What the hell is it called? It's a simple word, I know that. It's a word people use frequently. I know it. I know that I know it. But I can't find it. It's okay. Let's move on. No! I yell. Wait a minute. I look around. I gaze out the window and see it. I can point at it, but I can't name it. I'm so frustrated that I start tearing up. It doesn't help. She crosses her legs. It's a tiny gesture of impatience that she lets slip. But I understand. I'd be impatient too. She taps the table with her pinky. I have no idea how this works. Do I move my tongue? My lips? When do I release the air from my lungs? How does this work? What comes first? And why can't I do it? Then suddenly... It's... Tree. What did you say? The tree Yes, very good, Daron. Very good. We look at each other, letting the feeling of victory wash over us. No one will ever know about this triumph. Thanks. Honestly, it was a guess. I wasn't sure I had the right word, but I just went for it. I gambled and it paid off big time. I feel like I just completed a treacherous three-day trek. Zela shows me another picture. It's some kind of tool, not a broom. It's used for something, not gardening, but rather cutting things in half. No matter how hard I think, the word doesn't come to me. I can see two workers holding this object at each of its ends. They move it back and forth and it cuts. I know this tool, I know it. But nothing. It took me ages to relearn telephone as well. And then one day, as if with the flick of a switch, the light behind the word telephone turned on. 
Telephone. I was so happy when that word came back to me. I felt like a magician. But this object in front of me now, this tool moving forward and backwards, it's still dark, still stuck. It's okay. Tela tries to comfort me. We'll come back to it later. But my sense of failure ruins the next word for me too. It's a picture of a tool again, but a different tool. This one you can work with, you can also kill with it. I close my eyes and try to concentrate. I can hear Tela say something, but I gesture to her with my hand. Just give me a second. I have to solve this one. Then, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, she starts yelling at me. If you don't get this in ten seconds, you will pay for every single word you forget. Do you hear me? Do you understand what I'm saying? She has a glint of crazy in her eyes. Behind each card, there's a number. If you get a word wrong, that's the number of days you'll spend in solitary confinement. <sighs> I wake up. It's okay. Zela smiles as usual. Do you want to stop for today? How long have I been sleeping? Um, just about two minutes. That's it? Yeah, it's okay, really. I know how taxing this is. Why don't you go wash your face? I do. The cold water calms me down. I'd like to give it another try. She picks up a card. There it is. That tool again. The two workers. Say whatever comes to mind. Zela encourages me. Just blurt it out. I stare at the picture and try. I see a nice man. A builder. He's got a tool belt with all his tools dangling around. He's making these motions back and forth, back and forth. He's working very hard. It's a different word. A special word. In the mountains. Say whatever comes to mind. I force air out and exhale. Okay, let's stop for today. Really, it's okay. Duhifat! Hupu! I yell. What? Hupu! <laughs> I burst out laughing. Tela is laughing too. Why are you laughing? I don't know. Do you know what a hupu is? No. Not at all? It's uh, it's something in nature. Right, but what in nature? Maybe a bird? Yes, a special bird. A strange bird. Yes, exactly. Have you ever used that word before? I don't think so. So why did you say hoopoo? Because you told me to. You said, say whatever comes to mind. And that's what came to mind. Have you ever seen a hoopoo bird? I think so. When? At school. When you were a boy? Yes. And what did you think when you heard that word, hoopoo? I'm not sure. Just that it's a special word. Special how? It's, it's different from all the other words you've asked me to say. It's more special than desk or chair. It comes from far away, from a high place, a distant land, where houses are made out of logs where builders mark the wood with pencils they keep behind their ears. I'm exhausted. Sorry again for falling asleep. 
I close the notebook with aligned pages and slide it into my bag. She puts away all her tools. The hammers, the ladders, the trees, and pencils. All I want is to go to bed. I turn my wheelchair towards the door, but stop before I leave. Did you forget anything? Dron? Suddenly, I see a man. A man from long ago. The man who played that tool as if it was a musical instrument, even though it wasn't a musical instrument at all. He was holding it between his knees, bending and strumming it with a bow, getting it to produce all kinds of weird sounds. It was in Kibbutz Ramatakovish. I now remember. I was there filming. All these kids were sitting around him. They were wearing orange t-shirts. Maybe it was a summer camp? It was a group. And they had a name. And this man, he was playing his non-instrument for them. Dron, is everything okay? That man, he was playing a saw. What did you say? A saw. He was playing a saw. And those kids, they were a group of scouts. And their group, it was called Duchifat. Hoopoo. That association between the word maso or saw and duchifat or hupu dated back to 1981, more than 30 years before the session in Selah's office. Doron had been shooting a scene for a film on the main lawn of Kibbutz Ramatakovish. There was a group of kids, their group's name was duchifat. Duchifat, or hupu, is Israel's national bird, by the way. And in the middle of the group was a man playing on a saw. Now, listen, you have to understand that that association between a saw and the word duchifat was buried there. Somewhere in my subconscious. Since 1981, I was shocked. Ishai Golan and Gilia Stern Nechmad with Doron Nesher's story, Duchifat, which is part of his amazing memoir, Hamoach Sheli Vani, or My Brain and I. The book, which I highly, highly recommend, is in Hebrew. But Yochai Meital translated this story, and also produced and sound designed the piece. Our dubber was Dan Gold. The beautiful original scoring is by the one and only Or Matias. And a special thanks to Jules Lawrence, who played the saw for the piece. Yes, yes, that weird wavy instrument you heard playing at the end was actually a saw. Okay, we are here at Har Menuchot Cemetery in Givat Shaul in Jerusalem. Trying to find the right entrance. Continue straight. So, I promised you one last chapter. One final twist in the tragic tale of Shmulik Landau, the chief caretaker at the Israeli Wildlife Hospital at the Safari in Ramat Gan. 
who, several months after we spent the day releasing wild birds with him, took his own life. Okay, here we are. Let's go. Shmuel Kadoshi is a ranger in the Parks Authority. He also, just by chance, happened to be Shmuelik Landau's classmate in high school. Last April, Shmuel got a call from a contractor overseeing a building project in the cemetery. The contractor told him that an oach, an eagle owl, had created a nest in an open grave in one of the cemetery's wall burials. Like the good ranger that he is, Shmuel showed up. Just to discover that this eagle owl had indeed made its nest and laid five eggs in an empty grave right above Shmuelik's final resting place. Eagle owl nests are rarely spotted, Shmuel told me, especially within a city. And there are more than 580 dunams and roughly 200,000 graves at Haram Nuchot Cemetery. So, believe what you want, but this is one hell of a coincidence. When the story came out, thousands of Israelis posted thoughts on reincarnation. Shmuel, the ranger, who's religious, by the way, isn't sure what to make of it. He calls it a sgirat ma'agal, the closing of a circle, a continuation of what Shmuelik did in his lifetime. The eerie fact that the bird nested right on top of Shmuelik is less about mysticism. That's not it, he says. It's more the memories, the eternal things we leave behind in this world. That's what's moving for him. Eli, Shmulik's brother, basically agrees. I have to say that it is not exciting me, the, the, um, the story about the bird, because, you know, uh, he could uh, be anywhere. Eli's wife, Sarah, Shmulik's sister-in-law sees it differently. I just want to say one thing that's very important to me about the bird and the nest. Because Ellie doesn't believe, <laughs> he doesn't understand what is a big issue about this nest. Uh, but I believe <laughs> uh, that people want, they want closure. They want to know that the person that they love didn't leave them when he died. That the soul can send us some signs. Now, I, I totally agree with Elliot that Shmulik would have laughed <laughs> about what I'm saying now. Uh, but there are a lot of people, I believe, like me, that, uh, that find very, a, a lot of meaningful in those kind of stories. It, it doesn't matter what I think about uh, the fact, okay? The important thing is the feelings, and if people think that it is. Meaningful, so it is. And that's our episode, Free as a Bird. 
Our staff includes Yochai Meital, Zev Levi, Adina Karpuch, Jamal Rishek, Shoshana Sara, Mitch Ginsberg, and Rotem Tzin. Lev Cohen and Shira Shantz Khalil are incredible production interns. Sela Weisblum is our sound engineer. Zev Levi scored and sound designed this episode with music from Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks to David Horowitz, Mick Weinstein, Theo Cantor, Shlomit Berman, Matt Littman, Shai Doron, Ronnie Elias, and Sasha Foer. You can catch up on all our past episodes on our site, israelstory.org, or by searching for Israel Story wherever you get your podcasts. You can and should also check out our new home at timesofisrael.com slash podcasts. And of course, Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all under Israel Story. If you're interested in sponsoring episodes of Israel Story, email us at sponsor at israelstory.org. I'm Ishi Harman, and we'll be back in two weeks with a brand new Israel Story episode. Till then, wonderful to be back on air. Spread your wings and fly. Shalom, shalom, and Alibi. Ilucipori Asherafo Mealhayam Ilucipori Hayudavo Kivne Adam
felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.